We're going to start today with something we finished with last week, which is to practice being grateful people. So to refresh your recollection, we're going to spend a few minutes writing down five things that you're grateful for today, and then write one sentence about each of these things. So um, uh, you should have pens. If you don't, please let us know, because we got people with pens that will be giving them out, so let us know if you need pens. You could use your uh, smartphones, that's fine, because you, that will keep track of these um, these uh, gratefulness notes that you're writing down as well. Um, oh, and we did say last week that we would not, or we would try not to repeat what we wrote last week, right? So we're going to try to come up with a new list of five. So if we went through children, family, um, spouses, friends, uh, whatever else, then I want to encourage you guys to come up with a different list. And what is helpful, just to give you guys a little bit of a clue, is for you to think about something that happened in the last uh, 24 hours that you can be grateful for, or break down very specifically some of these things that you may have even wrote out as a group. So if you said, I'm grateful for my friends, think of one friend and write down what you appreciate about him or her. And um, if you said, I'm grateful for my kids, I think about one thing that one thing specific that you're grateful for. So, um, let me give you a few minutes to do that. I'll be quiet. And I want to encourage you right now uh, to share with uh, at least one of these things, would you, with somebody that's sitting next to you or close to you, and give you guys a chance to do that, so... So good stuff. Hopefully you guys are encouraged by that. Um, I've been doing this uh, gratitude exercise this week almost almost every day. And I have to say I've been kind of looking forward to it. And it actually gets a little bit easier and easier every time you do it. Because you kind of get into a groove and you realize, oh, that's another thing. That's another thing. And the other thing that you wind up doing is you think through the day something um, that's delightful, uh, something that's surprisingly um, good for whatever reason, and you think, I'm going to write that down. So I look forward to it. I realize just how many things I am ungrateful for. So I would love 
to encourage all of you guys to try doing this, not just on Sunday. Okay? And it's, it's free. Okay? So, now today begins the season of Advent. Um, I can think of at least one thing that Nadia is thankful for this week, I think. I just, just want to say... So I, I, we could say that, right? In fact, I didn't get a chance to say hello to you. So congratulations to Nadia for uh, choosing. Can we see? Yeah, okay. Nadia's engaged. Congratulations. <clears throat> Today begins the season of Advent. And Advent is about getting ready for Christmas, not by shopping or putting up decorations, of course. But by preparing our minds and our hearts, uh, ourselves, our lives, and one part of this, one part of the Advent tradition, and you think uh, Christmas time, getting ready for it, should be more celebrative. But actually, Advent tells us to be uh, penitent, uh, to be contrite, to prepare ourselves by thinking about our sins as well. So it fits well for the communion that we will be having today. And also with the story that we we read in Nehemiah chapter 9, which records this great communal, communal confession of the people of God, that, the story that we've been following for the last couple of months. Now, I want to begin this message by asking all of you guys to think of, um, to, uh, by asking you guys a question to think of something, which is, what is the dumbest thing that you ever did as a kid? Think for a moment. Some of you guys are like, oh, that dumbest? There's like a list of a hundred plus. This would be easier than the thankfulness list, right? What is the dumbest thing you ever did as a kid? Maybe not the dumbest thing I I ever did, but I became reconnected on Facebook um, with one of my closest childhood friends. And, you know, uh, you don't see somebody for decades and and, and they, somehow you get this, you get reconnected through a friend and a friend, and, you know, you get a little thing that you both agree to become friends again. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, you look through the pictures on their side, and you go, oh, my goodness, why are you so old? And, and, and they're saying the exact same thing about you, right? <clears throat> but um, I became reconnected on Facebook with one of my closest childhood friends, and it brought back a rush of memories, because we spent tons of time together. We spent like at least three summers almost, almost every day hanging out with each other, basically for the most part doing nothing, trying to figure out what do we do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? I don't know. You know, that sort of stuff. Um, so uh, clearly a good friend, right? And there was a group of four of us that used to hang out all the time in my junior high school years, do a lot of really dumb things together. Uh, we went hunting for squirrel one time. This is in New York City. This is not the backwoods of Wyoming. Um, we sold his stepdad's tools from his garage. <laughs> we did this. And I, for some reason, it never occurred to me that we shouldn't do this. For some reason, we thought, well, he's not using it. Oh, okay, he's not using it. Okay, let's sell it. And, um, you know, but that's not the dumbest thing. Um, and this even might not be the dumbest thing. But one time we decided to have a, uh, uh, we were bored, four of us were hanging out, and we decided to uh, have tag team wrestling. Tag team wrestling, this is, it's not funny because all guys do this. All guys, right? You just kind of like, even now, if my back doesn't hurt, I would be like, hey, what are we going to do? I don't know. Get some coffee or tag team wrestling. I might do it. Um, But we decided to have tag team wrestling match in his basement so we just, you know, we move all the furniture back and we move all the breakable things to the side, right? Because we are going to be careful a little bit. And, and we just start wailing at each other. And you know how these wrestling matches go, right? Because there's almost, it almost always ends with one kid on the ground with his face turning bright red. And there's like all these like eyes about to pop out in some sort of a headlock, headlock right? Um... I had a disadvantage when I was doing this, especially against my, friend, uh, my Facebook friend, Ian, um, because Ian had about 20 pounds on me, and he was a very strong guy. So I, kept, uh, I was sick of losing. 
I kept, I was sick of getting, you know, uh, beat by him. So I decided one time, I tag in, and, and I said, I'm going to use, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use leverage. I'm going to go, go at him full force. So I get on a three-point football stance, and I just fly at him. I just fly at him, and I catch him off guard, and it just throws him so far back, so hard, knocks him off his feet, that he goes crashing into the back wall, and he just is just stunned. And I'm just feeling victorious, and I'm about to celebrate until I realize the wall actually didn't stop Ian. Uh, He actually went through the wall, and the wall now, this drywall, has this gigantic human torso-shaped hole on this uh, uh, behind him. So what do we do? So what do young teenage boys do? Go and fess up and, 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 and say this, you know, we were wrestling, uh, mom, and um, we, we wrestled a little bit too hard and we made this gigantic hole in our basement wall. No, no, we looked at each other. And we started rearranging the furniture. <laughs> it just makes sense when you're in junior high school to do this. And to try to cover up for the gigantic hole as if, you know, somehow the mom's going to buy into the fact that, oh, you guys were bored and you guys decided to redecorate the furniture. Oh, that's awesome, guys. Um, we moved, I think, a plant or something in front of this hole. And for some reason... In my eighth grade head, I thought, ah, this is good. I think we have a chance. No one's going to notice. That his mom would say, that's great. I love the fact that you guys are, you know, doing interior decorating. Now, of course, she noticed right away because she has these things called eyes. So she asked him, what happened? And what does Ian say? I don't know. (laughs) Now, I asked you, what are some of the dumbest things that you did as a kid? I'm sure we can think of a lot of things. But most of these stories become really, really funny because of what we try to do to cover up for our dumb things, right? For our dumb mistakes. The fact of the matter is, just because you're an adult, just because you're a little bit older, it doesn't mean you grow out of this, right? It doesn't mean you grow out of this. Ever, um, if you ever worked in an office, how many of you guys have ever jammed a copy machine and then just walked away? I know it's not just me because I've run into plenty of copy machines that were jammed and I'm going, who would do this? Of course, I would and somebody else would, right? Who jammed this? Somebody comes in and says, oh, somebody jammed the copy machine. And you go, I don't know. We used to do this when, like, Son and I were the only two people in the office. It was just like, I don't know. It's like, what? (laughs) You ever uh, take the last drop of coffee from the pot and didn't start a new brew and somebody says, who took the last cup? I don't know. What? What? It just, What? just happened anybody ever clogged the toilet at starbucks i was working at starbucks this morning you know the answer is no one no not in the history of humanity somebody says they have clogged the toilet at starbucks starbucks employers will tell you it's always the guy that came before me so even with little things when we do something dumb so often our impulse is to cover up And when we sin, then, our impulse is just as quick to cover up, to want to deny, to want to avoid, to blame someone else, just like when we were kids, just like we do with the smaller things in life. Now, this, of course, is an ancient pattern that you find to the first human beings, to Adam and Eve, that you can trace back in the Garden of Eden. When they first sinned, when they first took from the forbidden tree, right? They take the fruit. I mean, they got 
They got like thousands of trees and thousands of fruit. All the best fruit in the world is there. And they could have their pick from any one of them. But of all the trees, they picked the one where God said, that is the one that is not for you. And God says, what? What did you do? Who did this? What is their answer? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. They hide, right? They try to cover up. They literally put fig leaves on their body to cover up for their sin because they feel shame now. God asks, who did this? And they point fingers at each other and everybody else. Instead, at that point, think about the story. Instead of acknowledging their sin and asking God for forgiveness, they lie and thus poison humanity's relationship with our Creator. This is our ancestors. This is in our genes. This is who we are. This is the human condition. The way back from this, the way back from our sins, our wrongdoings, our dumb things in life is confession, which is telling the truth about the wrong that we have committed. Telling the truth, the reality about what, how we have messed up. This is also one of the toughest things for us to do as human beings. Even when we know it's good for the soul, confession is not easy, yet it is one of the foundational disciplines of our faith. Proverbs 28.13, if you guys have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Proverbs 28.13. And it says this about confession. It says, whoever conceals their sin does not prosper. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. In other words, confession, telling the truth about our wrongs, releases mercy, releases God's mercy. Confession leads to mercy. James 5.16 connects confession leading to healing, our own healing as well. So the thing that holds us back from the fullness of God's blessings in our lives, the thing that allows for our past failures, our mistakes, our dumb decisions to no longer have the power that it has, to no longer keep us sick, the scriptures tells us is a confession. And the thing that holds us then trapped by our wrongdoings, that keeps us ill, keeps us from finding wholeness is our lack of confession. That's what confession is. That's what confession does. What is happening in Nehemiah chapter 9 is that for the first time in the history of these lives, these people whose entire life history has been about running from one dumb thing after another, finally they grab hold of this truth Our sins trap us, they realize, but freedom and mercy can be found in confessing them to the Lord. So there's this mass confession that takes place. The entire city of people confess their sins. They're wearing, uh, they're fasting, they're wearing sackcloth, they put dust on their heads. All of these things are symbols of repentance, sorrow for one's sins. All of these things are confessions of the fact that they are saying, We have committed wrong. So these once broken people, living in in a broken city with a broken wall, they realize they they need to become broken once more. But this time in the right way. They realize they're not the way they are because they lack the political power, because there were these kingdoms that overcame them. They realize they're not the way they are because... God forgot about them, or that their God is a cruel God that decides to one at one time think about them and then another time not think about them. They realize it's their sin. It's their disobedience. It's their unfaithfulness. So they break down once more. They break down the walls of their lies. They break down 
the walls of their self-righteousness. They break down the walls of their blame, pointing fingers at other people. And through confession, they find God's mercy on the other side. That's what's happening here. Now, there's a lot that's happening in chapter 9. But I actually want for us to spend some time practicing confession at the end of this time. And one of the things that we will do together is to recite the prayer of confession. You guys may have noticed, some of you guys may have noticed, that we actually skipped that during the first part of our worship. So we're going to do that prayer at the end of this message. And that will also serve as a confession time in which that will help us to prepare ourselves for communion. And what I want to do is just make a couple of observations. I just want to make a couple of notes about uh, how the people confess in Nehemiah chapter 9. The first thing I want for us to notice is the context. Notice the setting in which this confession takes place. Tell me what these people are doing. And it is a little bit um, both obvious and yet at the same time hidden uh, because it's so obvious. Verse 3 tells us they stood where they were and read from the book of the Lord, book of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. They spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. And verse 4 lists all of the Levites and all the priests that come up to the front and lead them in this practice. And then verse 5, they shout out together, Stand and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And it tells us about what they're doing together. Now, what would you call this? They're reading from the Bible. They're singing. Priests are leading people in worship. What was that, what was this thing called? What is this thing called? What are they doing? They're worshiping. Yeah, they're in worship. That's the most obvious thing. They're in worship. And why is that significant? It's this. Because true worship cannot proceed unless we take our confession seriously. True worship cannot proceed unless we take our confession seriously. One person writes, sin is insignificant to people who view God as insignificant. Sin is insignificant to people who view God as insignificant. In other words, we cannot really declare that God is great, which is the point of worship, unless we treat our sin as seriously as God does. So part of what it means for us to gather together in worship is to think about our sin and our sinfulness. It goes so much against, and I point this out because it goes so much against um, so much of the feel-good sort of worship that we've been trained to expect in our lives. But it is critical that we do this, that we think about our sin. Think about the things that we hide. Things, think about the mass that we put up. This is the reason why we have a prayer of confession in our worship. And this is something that the church has been doing for thousands and thousands of years. But only in recent times have we neglected. And most of us, including myself, we've grown up in a situation in which we have made this confession time basically a personal thing. And only maybe if you go to a revival or a special service do you now consider confession part of worship. Confession is part of worship, and we need to take that seriously. If we're going to take God seriously, we need to take sin seriously. Sin is insignificant to people who consider God insignificant. Now, the worship context also tells us something else, which is that confession happens within the context of community. This is something that we've been learning But I think for many of us who grew up in evangelical traditions, we're rather uncomfortable with this idea of confession and worship. Let me push that again. We think of it as something that we do in private, something that is very personal, right? Just to God. Just something that we do to God. But scriptural witness is quite the opposite. In fact, the Hebrew word for confession can be literally translated to say, to speak out, to speak forth, to bring something out. 
The image is that of bringing something that is in here, out here. That's what confession brings to mind. Something that is in here, and you bring it out here. So King David in Psalm 32 writes this about holding on to a sin. He says like this. He says, when I kept silent, refusing to confess our sins, my bones wasted away through all my groaning, and my strength was sapped. In other words, when I kept silent, when I was keeping my sins a secret, I felt like I was dying inside. Now, I'm going to guess that many of us can relate to that feeling. Things that we hold inside that we are ashamed of, where our problems, our fears, our compulsions, our addictions. And you know, at that moment, at the moment you, that you, you refuse to bring Fourth, you actually think that is the safe way, that silence is the safe way, that silence is the best way. But in fact, it doesn't. It kills you from the inside. It makes you feel like you're dying on the inside. Because pretty soon, what happens is when you hold your sins on the inside and nobody knows that about you, you have to create masks. And people... Even the people that you're closest to can only relate to this lie of a person, this mask. So you feel more distant in your relationships. You feel more distant in your friendships. Because you find yourself, you find that no one really knows you. And then you go through these times in which you feel like, you know, I feel so alone but you don't realize you're creating that loneliness. You're creating that space, that distance from people by creating a mask that no one is allowed to go through. Sin thrives on these masks, and these masks thrive on silence. Pretense. Lies that we tell other people about us, about how, how we might wish that we were. But in fact, it really isn't. And they kill relationships and they kill community. Which is why confession is so critical for a church community. People don't know you. They know the mask about you. And our loneliness grows. I've been incredibly uh, blessed to have friends who have dropped their guards with me. And they have modeled for me in my life because this is something that's really, really hard. Because it's, I remember as one of my highest values, especially as a kid, was to make sure that people think of me in a certain way when I was younger. When I say a kid, I'm talking about when I was in my 30s, I guess. That people, I would value so much more in one sense what people thought about me rather than that people really, really knew me. Even though I valued and I desired and I longed for people to know me and I longed for people to love me for who I am and who I was, I found myself setting up masks. I felt that that's what I was supposed to do. And I've been incredibly blessed in my life to have friends who would challenge that, who would challenge that, model that, because they would tell me, they would confess to me what was going on in their hearts. And then they would urge me to do the same. So I want to say in one part, I'm a recovering ma- mask addict at this point in my life because I desire... I, I no longer desire for people to, to know, um, to not know my mistakes, my failures. But I, now I want friendships that love me with my mistakes and my flaws and my problems. And I've been blessed that there have been people who have reciprocated that. Your confession 
and who you are and getting to the bottom of this, bringing your sin out from the inside matters because it impacts community. Because if we have a community full of people relating to each other's mass, we don't have a community. Your sin matters. How you're doing matters not just to you. Your sin matters to the rest of us, to the rest of the people that you desire and long to be in fellowship with. No matter how personal you think they are, they impact others, especially the ones that you love the most. It matters because your sins, even just by the virtue of you holding it inside, it damages other people, it corrodes your soul, and it's an affront and it wounds God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this. He says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. And you know, that is really, really sad for me. Because so many of us, so many of us, that means that so many of us in the church, even in the church, we never really experience the true warmth of friendships, true warmth of community, true blessings, a fellowship. Because we're convinced that we must hide our sins. And we die inside every time we do this. Every time in the history of the church, there was a great movement by the, uh, by the Spirit of God, the mass began to come off. And one of the things that has to happen is so is confession. People come out of hiding. So what fears are you hiding? What failures are you hiding in your life? What flaws are you hiding? Is there a mass that you hide behind? And what's hiding behind that mask? That's part of what we're supposed to be thinking about during confession. And Nehemiah tells us, the Bible tells us, Proverbs 32 tells us, we need to take confession seriously if we're going to grow a people of God that can receive in all aspects of their life the mercy of God. And this is the second thing that I want to point to. The thing that dislodges our sin and brings forth confession then. So we need to confess because without confession, there's all of these consequences. All of these bad, bad, awful consequences. All these different ways in which we refuse to uh, receive life because we are hiding. The thing that dislodges that, the the thing that brings forth that confession, if you read this text, is not fear. It's not greater punishment. You better tell. Otherwise, you know, that's not what this is. Rather, it is mercy. It's mercy that drives confession. It is mercy that drives our understanding of confession. My son likes to ask the question, uh, why right now these days? A lot. Um, and he's moving from that, you know, kid logic and being okay with the kid logic where you say, oh, because of whatever, and saying, okay, from that to kind of, you know, saying, that doesn't make sense, and saying, why? So I would say bef- before something like, can you bring me that, Max? I'll say that. And he'll actually say, why? Why can't you get it? Like challenging authority already, right? And I have to say something good. I have to actually come up with a good reason. And, and, you know, at the end of the day, can you bring me something? Because the actual answer is because I really don't want to get up. It's not that good of a reason, so I can't use that. So I say something like, um, 
the right answer would be something like, well, because, you know, um, that would be very helpful if you were help, to help me out. And being helpful is a wonderful character quality to develop. That's what would be the right thing to do. But I just know if I were to say something like that, he would also say, why? Why can't you do it? Or why, why do I need to develop a wonderful character quality? Or I don't know. You just know where it's going to go. So nowadays, I find myself being a little bit lazy about this, especially after, like, he asked why for, like, the 200th time in a day. I find myself saying, like, because you will get in trouble if you don't. And I realize, I understand that is not good parenting technique, but I find myself saying that. And my feeling is that most of us are impetus for confession still. The reason why we think we ought to even consider confession is out of fear because we will get in even greater trouble if we don't. Because greater punishment awaits us. But that's not what we see here. And that's not what we're told in Nehemiah 9. It resounds with reminders of God's mercy throughout their story with the nation of Israel. Verse 17 says, You are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert our ancestors. It says, verse 19 says, Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. And verse 28 said, Yet when they cried out, even though they failed you once again, yet when they cried out again, that one last time, you still heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you deliver them once again. So what we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 is a story after story of God's faithfulness and how God's last word is always mercy. God never gives up on his people. God never gives up on his mercy. And he never changes his way throughout all of their history. And this is what we're being told The main reason why the story goes on, why they go through the entire story, history, is not just to recount how they have failed, but rather it is to remember that God is a God of mercy. And this is what gives Christians the confidence to confess our sins, our failures. That's the motivating factor. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Scriptures remind us, mercy is the thing that drives us. When you confess, Proverbs 32 reminds us that in our confession, in our renouncing of our sins, we find mercy. Confession and renouncing leads to mercy. That is the hope. That is the point. That is the purpose of our confession, not guilt, not fear, not anxiety, not pressure, not out of obligation, but because we find freedom in confession. I run into all of these stories um, all the time, right? People will say to you all the time, somebody say, you know, um, somebody gets caught with uh, something, and somebody tells them. And, and a journalist or, uh, will ask them, it's like, how do you feel after you told the story? How do you feel now that the truth is out? And so often, these are not Christians, so often the people who, who say these, um, who have kept this secret with them, who have kept something that they did wrong, there's something horrible that they did, for such a long time, they actually say, I feel the burden lifted off me. I feel free. I feel free. Because now people know me, and I feel that's better than the lie that I was living. God promises for us mercy, not just freedom, in fact, but rather love and grace to be showered upon us as we make our confessions, as we say, yeah, I am not the person. I'm not the person that you thought I was. I have all this stuff inside. I have all this stuff inside. 
I've messed up a lot. I've made a lot of bad mistakes. I've made a lot of dumb mistakes. I've done a lot of dumb things in my life. And you find mercy, not condemnation, not judgment, not wrath, but mercy on the other side of that. Can I close this, um, this part and, and I, with a rather a, um, kind of a gross image? Because it's been in my head this entire week as I've been thinking about this message. It's, it is a little bit of a gross message, uh, gross, almost slightly bathroom humorish. It's not, it's not that bad, but you could, you know, plug your ears if you find it too gross. And feel free to, you know, just uh, listen to your iPhone or something if, if it gets too, too graphic. But um, you'll know where this is going. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. It's, it's, it's better to set it up that way than to, you know, shock you later on. So um, I've had this image in my head um, as I was uh, preparing for this message. I do this uh, mountain bike ride in this place called Black Star Canyon. Anybody ever hear of it, Black Star Canyon? Okay. Just Drew and, and Kayla. Okay, okay. It's kind of a cool place. It starts off at this, uh, on a road off of Santiago Canyon. Uh, that used to be, used to be, it starts off as an old coal, coal mine um, campsite, and, and then it leads into a um, centuries-old Indian campsite. And basically, you pedal up uh, the side of, the Orange County side of Santa Ana, Santa Ana Mountains, until you get to the top, you get to the top of the peak, and you look, and on the other side now is Corona and Riverside. It's kind of a cool ride. It's an hour and a half of riding. It's, it's just steep all the way. It makes you feel pretty good, and, but you're huffing it the entire way. Even if you were to walk it, you would be huffing because it's just steep the entire way. And it's a great place. So much history, and there are sections where you can see these stones that the Indians that, uh, have used uh, centuries ago. For grinding grain, they say. Well, a few weeks ago, I was riding up the fire road, biking my way up very slowly, and you're, you're, you know, the speed that you're going at is something like four or five miles an hour. So you're just going, just grinding away. You're at the lowest gear, and you're, just, and you're still, you know, you moved only like this much. So you go very, very slow, and you can see what's ahead of you pretty well. And I could see um, about a mile away, I could see from um, even maybe per- perhaps even more. Uh, a couple of hikers. It looks like um, a man and a, uh, and a boy. Uh, and they're just standing there on the side of the road. And they're just kind of just standing there on the side of the road. And as I get closer, I can see uh, clearly this is like a father and a son uh, sort of a situation. And they're, they seem to have been out for a nice hike. They got some um, uh, water bottles and they got some bags, possibly a food or something. And, um, but the son, who's, who's about 12 years old, um, as I get closer, he's now bent over, and his head is in the bushes. And he's on his knees, and he's bent over in the bushes, and he's just, you can see that by the convulsions that he's, he's just, you know, he, oh, heaving away, and he's just, things are just going out, and you can just hear it. And, and I am a parent, so I know what this sounds like, and it doesn't shock me. Because I've done this and I've, you know, this is like a daily occurrence. But it is nevertheless not a pleasant sight. Um, it, the kid is clearly miserable. Uh, I've seen this convulsive, convulsive movement so many times. The dad is just standing there um, on the ground. Actually, by the time I get there, he, I see him sitting down. And he's got his hand over the son's back, and he's rubbing the son's back. That's a beautiful scene. <laughs> but you know how you sometimes, um, you see a scene like that, and you just get a glimpse of it, but there are enough clues in the scene, the, the overall scene, and to put together an entire story of what happened in that morning. And as I got closer, I heard the dad talking and to the son, and I heard two words that told me everything that I needed to know to complete the story of what happened and what must have been happen- happening. 
And those two words were chicken nuggets. <laughs> chicken nuggets. And it took every uh, bit of self-control for me to not say, as I rode by them, did you get the 20-piece? <laughs> and the dad is just sitting there, talking to his son, looking away once in a while, but rubbing the son's back gently, lovingly, as a parent would do. And you know, the reason I bring that up, because as odd as it might seem, I thought of this image as I was thinking about this message. Because that, in one sense, that for those of us who confess and renounce our sins, we find, for those of us who are able to find the humility to, in one sense, get on our knees and get this stuff that's gross and eating away and we get it out. What you find, in fact, what you find, in fact, is not condemnation. What you find is not wrath and judgment upon you. But, in fact, you find mercy and the soothing hand of the Father. Standing there, sitting there with us, just waiting to give us peace. Waiting for us. Desiring for us to find his love. That's what confession does. And I thought about that image because I think that is the better image, as bad as it might be for some of you guys. At least for me, because I think about this confession thing as such a painful For so many years, I thought about confession as this painful, painful thing. That was the last thing I wanted to do, that I could never understand the logic of why anybody would ever want to do it. Why anyone would ever want to subject themselves to judgment by others. But but viewed from a perspective of mercy, it has a Completely a different story. This is what Proverbs tells us. This is what people in Nehemiah trusted. This is so important. So I'm going to ask right now for us to spend a little time in prayer quietly. First, preparing our hearts And then confession, owning up to the truth, owning up to the ugly truth about us. Yeah, that we're a lot pettier than other people think. Yeah, that we're willing to lie to save other people's opinions of me. And yeah, We have done a lot of dumb things that we've we've hoped that nobody would notice. And yes, we have a lot of addictions, a lot of sins that have hold on our lives. I want to ask all of you to spend some time in silence, silent prayer, thinking about these things. And when you are ready, I will ask you to stand with me. And in our standing, that will be our, our symbol of putting on a sackcloth, putting dust in our hair, and we'll pray the prayer of confession together. Acknowledging that, that you have received your mercy not by me giving the pardon, but rather by coming up afterwards to receive the bread and the cup. So let me give you a little time to pray. Now, would you all stand with me as your 
And may your standing, may that be a declaration of you saying, yes, I am guilty, but I desire mercy. I desire God's mercy. And we're going to pray the prayer of confession together. And afterwards, I ask you to come up to receive your communion as a sign of you receiving, understanding, and acknowledging the mercy that has been given, bought for us by Christ himself, by his sacrifice, by his death and, re- death and resurrection. Let's pray the prayer of confession together. Merciful God, we confess to you now that we have sinned. We confess the sins that no one knows and the sins that everyone knows. We confess the sins that are a burden to us and sins that do not bother us because we have grown used to them. We confess our sins as a church. We have not loved one another as Christ loved us. We have not forgiven one another as we have been forgiven. We have not been given ourselves in love and service for the world as Christ gave himself for us. Father, forgive us. Send the Holy Spirit to us that he may give us power to live as by your mercy you have called us to live. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. As you remain standing, the words of the communion element. As Apostle Paul taught us, Therefore, I receive from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread... And drink this cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.